It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. So I have to admit that today I feel low in energy, at least in this moment. I think that oftentimes when Jason and I feel tired, we get energy by doing the podcast. But I figured I'd be a little transparent with that because as I was gearing up for the recording today, we got an email from one of our favorite companies called Peak Tea, and Peak is spelled P-I-Q-U-E. And they have something that is really worth shouting out. Two things, actually, that were really cool I didn't know about. One, they have something called Sun Goddess Matcha, and they claim that it's the world's purest matcha. And I think that means it's part of the screening that they do. It says that they're quadruple toxin screen for radioactive isotopes, heavy metals, toxic mold, and pesticides. And that's super fascinating because I don't really think about those things being in matcha. (laughs) And it reminds me of when I was reading about Bulletproof Coffee. I read a few of Dave Asprey's books. And when I learned about how coffee is commonly made, I was a bit appalled. So did you know this about matcha, Jason? Like, do you think about it having heavy metals or mold or pesticides? I mean, I guess pesticides, one of the reasons that we like peak tea is that they're entirely organic. But I've actually never tried their matcha powders. I love that it's called Sun Goddess, but I really love that it's screened for all of these things. And I thought it was an interesting thing to discuss at the beginning because I could really use a matcha right now. I would classify myself as a matcha connoisseur. And I really got turned on to it, I think, maybe close to a decade ago. But it was nowhere near the, I guess, kind of cultural awareness it is now. I mean, I feel like with matcha bar and matcha showing up at pretty much, I don't know about every coffee shop, but every kind of independent coffee shop, there's definitely a matcha option. I feel like in the last decade, it certainly exploded. And you had it yesterday at a coffee shop, right? Yeah, actually, my favorite matcha in LA, for any Angelinos or anyone passing through Los Angeles, there are a couple of locations for Maru Coffee, M-A-R-U, which is also a nickname for my cat Lynx. I call him Maru. I have a lot of nicknames for my animals. Maybe that's another segment. Maybe that's another podcast. I don't know if we could fill an hour with it, but many nicknames. Anyway, going back to matcha, I have never really considered the heavy metal content, Whitney, or necessarily those those higher standards. I've never heard those in reference to matcha. The only thing I've ever really paid attention to are two things. Number one, the grade of matcha. Whereas if I'm going out, I've noticed that there's a pretty marked difference, a a pretty substantial difference in a ceremonial grade matcha versus, I don't even know what they call it, an ungraded matcha. So for me, I've noticed that a place like Maru Coffee, they actually have three different varietals of matcha that go up in price. So if you really want, say, the highest grade ceremonial matcha they have, you end up paying, I think, $2 more for that matcha. But the taste and the way that my body feels, it's definitely potent. I can feel it. So to answer your question, I've always looked at the grades of matcha, the flavor, the depth, the how it you know sings on my palate, and then also how my body feels. That higher grade matchas, I definitely feel, I guess my brain is turned on in a different way. And I don't have 
I generally don't have a caffeine crash with matcha. You know, I don't have that buzzy, tingly, anxiety-ridden feeling that I have when I drink coffee. I guess just it kind of goes back to some of the things we've said on the podcast in regards to where you put your money and how you invest your dollars is when it comes to matcha, I have found that the more that you pay, the better quality and better feeling you get from the matcha. Absolutely. And matcha is really interesting. I too got introduced to it pretty early on. I think I started experimenting with matcha heavily in 2012. I was working at this store called the Detox Market. And that was one of my favorite little side gigs that I had actually, because I was the only one working at the shop at any given time. And I was surrounded by all these amazing products. And we'll shout out the Detox Market as well. They're an amazing company. They have a few locations and they also sell online. So they're accessible to pretty much anybody. Uh, And they actually pride themselves in curating really high quality products. And so I remember they had matcha and I was really didn't know much about it. And so I was kind of studying matcha while I was at the store just so I could demo it to people. And it's just so fascinating when when things like that are new. It also reminds me, I was having quinoa for the first time in a while recently. And I was thinking back to when I first had quinoa. And I don't know if you remember this, Jason, but like nobody knew how to pronounce it. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was quinoa, quinoa. <laughs> Kinawa, like People you heard so everything. Confused. Oh yeah, no, that was back in like 2009 or so, and that was also an, another job I had. I remember quinoa was on the rise at the time. Anyways, it's fascinating just to see the trend shape over time. And matcha is really interesting. It's something I really enjoy the taste of. I like the experience of it, but I'm I get much more excited about coffee than matcha in most cases. But I tend to drink matcha when I want more like calm, focused energy. And it can also help with your mood, apparently. It can help with your metabolism. There's a lot of benefits to having it on a more frequent basis. And gosh, if you check out the Peak Tea website, it's really fascinating what they're writing about it on here. A lot of things I I didn't know. And granted, some of this is marketing but they're a company that Jason and I really trust. So they're they're highlighting a lot of the benefits of their specific matcha, but also kind of teaching you about matcha in general. And we'll link to that in our show notes at wellevator.com. If you haven't visited our website yet, there are notes and transcripts and resource sections for every single episode that we do. So if you go there, you can just kind of skim through it after you listen or while you're listening and click on all these links. And so this is really interesting. One thing they point out on their page is that over 300 tons of radioactive water is pumped in, into the Pacific Ocean every day from the nuclear disaster site of Fukushima. <laughs> and farms in Japan are located very close to each other in order to maximize space efficiency. And this creates a pesticide drift problem where dangerous chemicals are carried by the wind to adjacent farms. And the highest quality ceremonial grade matcha on the market is not organic. And certified organic matchas are never made according to the highest standards of ceremonial grade. And that's actually something that I've heard a lot about, too. And this has to do with some of the old school traditions of making matcha. And those don't emphasize organic agriculture. So you might be drinking matcha because it tastes really great and it has these great health benefits, but it could also possibly have a lot of drawbacks. And so that's why I wanted to shout them out because I think this is really amazing, uh, similar to what I think Bulletproof Coffee has done for the coffee world, which is really paying 
a lot of attention to the sourcing and how things are made. And, you know, one of Bulletproof's big benefits is that the mold side of thing. And that, I mean, I just did not know that about coffee, (laughs) like thinking of mold on your coffee. But I guess the same thing can be true with matcha as well as the heavy metals and all these other things. So I think it's really fascinating. You can go on their website and read more about it. You could just read about matcha in general. Like one thing we recommend is to cross-reference any sources. So especially if you're reading something from a brand, even though we really love and trust a brand like Peak Tea, I would say the same thing about Bulletproof and any of these great brands out there that you don't want to just take their word for it because part of their aim is to market to you, to convince you to buy their products. But I have found in most cases that if you cross-reference the information, if you look at their sources, their resources, you'll find a lot of this information is is true. And it's a great way to start to educate yourself about the food that you're eating and you know anything that you're consuming in general things that you're drinking and all that. So what is this brought up for you, Jason? Is this something that you did or didn't know? Well, I didn't really consider, first of all, I mean, you mentioned Fukushima. I remember in 2011, when that disaster happened, how much concern there was for radiation poisoning and the drift coming over across the Pacific Ocean and everyone taking nascent iodine and lots of seaweed to protect their thyroid and people really... I remember just having a lot of discussions about anti-mutagenic food, anti-cancer foods, anti-radiation foods. But to hear that there is still nine years later, radiation being dumped into the Pacific Ocean, it's it's just, it's an SMH. Anybody who doesn't understand the internet abbreviation, it's shake my head. It's like, why, how the fuck are we as humanity allowing that still to happen? I mean, again, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but to hear that there's still radioactive materials being leaked and traced into the Pacific Ocean nine years after the disaster. It's like, my God. So first of all, it's just it's just disappointing and kind of frightening to hear that. But second of all, what comes up for me is the recent conversation we had with our dear friend, Max Goldberg, who is the creator of Organic Insider, and him talking about certification fatigue. I personally don't feel that. I don't think we mentioned that during that episode, Whitney. We were, I think, talking more about a general consumer mindset when they see too many codes and labels and certifications on a package that there's an overwhelm. But for me, as someone who really wants to be as informed and empowered of a consumer as I can be, especially with food choices and supplements and body care, whatever I put in or on my body, I think the fact that a brand like Peak is going to a level I've never seen with matcha in terms of quadruple testing, it's going to be interesting to me to see how, again, though the texture and the flavor and the usability compares to some of the other matchas that I'm using because I I do like to prepare it ceremonial. I actually have a special matcha, I don't know, mug, I guess. It's it's almost like a ceremonial drinking vessel that I picked up at a really cute tea shop in Pasadena, California called Bird Pick. And it's a really hand-formed, hand-glazed like I spent, you know, a decent amount of money on this and that's that's my matcha drinking bowl and I like to put the matcha powder in and you know, add a little bit of hot water and use the matcha whisk and then, you know, froth, use a frother to make whatever oat milk frothing. So it's going to be interesting to me to get my hands on this peak and see if it performs, you know, the same way. But the fact that it's organic and it's quadruple tested, I, I just, I love that brands are going the extra mile to provide something that what they perceive is, you know, the cleanest, highest quality out there. I, I love that. And I, I encourage more brands to do it even at the risk of, yeah, labeling fatigue or certification fatigue. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting and and similar to what we discussed with Luke's story when he was on our show is that there's a certain level 
of depth which you go into researching products and deciding what's best for you and how much money you spend on it, you know? And matcha in general is actually not that cheap. <laughs> if you buy a jar of it, it's pretty pricey. And I'm often surprised at that. But of course, if you get the cheap stuff, not only does it not taste as good, but who knows how it's made. And I think it's one of those pay with your purse or pay with your person scenarios that Jason and I often talk about, which is that sometimes people want to take the the cheapest route to have something, but it's not just about the flavor experience. It's really about the sourcing. And that's often why things are more expensive because so much goes into making a product. In fact, I was looking into some kind of gratitude practices and things like that recently. And one thing that came up is being really grateful and mindful of where your food came from as you consume it. So imagine like you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, this is a little on the pricey side, but if you weigh out the pros and cons and decide to get it, then just thinking about like, why does it cost that much? And if you start reflecting on how much work went into getting that product into your hands, it's really remarkable and it is something to be grateful for. And you should be grateful for your ability to have access to something and your ability to pay for something if you're you know, willing to spend the extra money or just in general. I think that's something that we often don't think about, especially if it comes to something we consume on a regular basis. And I think that when it comes to food and drink or any type of habits that we have, it's so amazing when we step back and say, wow, like I get to have this. I'm choosing to have this. I have the money to spend on this. I have the resources I learned about. I mean, the fact that you're listening to the podcast, right? Like there's even so many things that went into play for us recording this episode, but also our story of learning about Peak as a company too has been years in the making, right? And so when I start to reflect on the resources that I have access to, it, it's it's really remarkable. And I, I don't know if I spend enough time reflecting on that. It's like one of those things that you could turn into a daily practice. Like every time you you sit down to eat something, every time you open up a package of snacks or you make a drink like matcha, like pause for a moment and give gratitude. And then before or after, reflect on what you know of this. How did it come into your hands? And what I think is cool, actually, this transparency conversation reminds me of another brand we really love called One Degree Organic. And they're really neat. We, we know the owners of that company as well, and they've grown a lot over the years. They allow you to scan labels and find out exactly where the ingredients came from. And they'll have like pictures and stories of the farmers. And they just like go into major depth about all these things. And then one other brand that does that, who recently sent me some products to try out, is Gaia Herbs. And that one I actually feel the most connected to because I got to go visit their farm years ago. And it was remarkable. I think it was the owner of the company. He came out. There was a small group of content creators that went out to the farm this day. And he came and gave us a multi-day tour of the farm and took us around to see almost every single plant and told the story about it and showed us how it was made. And it was just mind-blowing. And again, one of the things they do, similar to One Degree, is you can scan the labels and go see how it was made on their website. And that to me is is really cool. I remember also, Whitney, like laughing about the memory of you going on that Gaia Herbs trip. 
there hasn't been many of these situations, but that was one of the trips where I, I had major FOMO that I didn't go. Aww. You know what I mean? Because it was yeah. so unique and so interesting and how rare it is to have a company invite you to where they are growing the bulk ingredients that go into their products. I mean, that that's incredibly rare. You know, I, I've always loved several occasions when brands would invite me to their manufacturing facilities. I've been to Miyoko's. I've been to Sweet Earth. Yeah, I was just thinking about Sweet Earth because we both went there. And remember that's when right. we got to eat one of their burritos like right off the production line and how good it tasted? That's right. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how the products are made, meet the people that are are physically making the foods at the manufacturing facilities and the intention and the craftsmanship and how incredibly difficult and complex and challenging it is to run a food manufacturing business. For anyone that, that doesn't know, and I'm glad you brought this up, Whitney, in terms of gratitude and awareness and acknowledgement of the food that ends up on our plate. To see how someone, again, for these examples, like say a Gaia Herbs, a Miyoko's Creamery, or Sweet Earth Natural Foods operates, to see the level of complexity in manufacturing packaged food at that high of a volume, you know, where they're cranking out, I mean, again, I'm pulling this number out of my butt, but, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of units, or on a major level with some food companies, you know, millions of units of product a month. And that is, first of all, something that I am in awe of. You know, I, I've always had, a little bit of a dream to start my own food line. You know, I've had a lot of different ideas to start and release products over the years, but I've never, I guess, landed on something that I felt so passionate about or compelled to, I guess, learn the ins and outs of that part of the industry that I, I almost know nothing about. I mean, I know about purchasing and ordering and inventory from my days working at restaurants, but on that scale, Whitney, it's staggering how much it takes to get that frozen vegan burrito into your freezer. Like it, it's remarkable, honestly. It really is. And it's also true on the other side of it. I mean, when we think about how inexpensive certain foods are, you can step back and think like, well, how did it get so cheap? Are there subsidies involved, which is the case for a lot of animal-based products or non-organic products? And so some people are kind of manipulated in a way because if they're really struggling financially, they don't have as much of a choice. Like they just simply can't afford to buy higher quality foods. And it's really sad because a lot of the the kind of political side of things that goes into making things less expensive so that more people will eat it because it's more accessible to them, that I find incredibly disturbing. And I think one of the big reasons that I'm feeling more and more passionate about making wellness in general more accessible and not just something for the elite, you know, and it's just it's a complex system here. And I think if you have the resources, whether it's financial or other creative ways, I mean, you know, you could be similar to Jason and I, where we use our resources as content creators and, and we have in exchange, we often will receive free products in order to learn more about them and talk about them. And that's something that a lot of people can do, actually. I mean, the whole content creation and influencer marketing world is pretty accessible these days. So I think it's actually would be really neat if you're feeling like you're struggling financially, you can start to use your voice in order to not just get those products to try out without having to pay for them, but also be able to talk to other people who might be financially struggling, if that makes sense. And so you can kind of 
use your voice for good and use your situation. And, and one thing I'm also really grateful for is people that talk about how they make their finances work. I mean, couponing is an incredibly fascinating world as well. And the things that you can get access to if you know how to find coupons and discount codes online, which is becoming easier and easier, like you can get so much. And what you could also do strategically is let's just say there's something that's expensive and you don't have a discount code for it or it's not enough. You could actually put that into your budget or like your wish list. And then you can use the couponing to buy other things. And then by paying less money for those, you have more money to spend on other things that you might not be able to find coupons or good deals on, right? So I'm really intrigued by stuff like that. Like if you really want something, is there a way for you to get it? You know what I mean? I think it also goes back to the conversation we were having. I can't remember which episode. It may have been an episode about Black Lives Matter, and I was talking about food justice and how I'm becoming more passionate about food justice. And, you know, when we talk about how the real cost of things, and we talk about Whitney, which, which my passion and my commitment to this is also increasing, of course, we're business partners and best friends, it makes sense that we're in alignment on this, that taking wellness and real health and care for oneself and sustainability out of a very narrow margin of middle to upper class white women and making it more accessible and affordable to different segments of people and different ethnicities, which it hasn't been to this point. I just want to touch back on the idea of subsidies that you mentioned because $1.99 value menu meal at whatever fast food restaurant you want to bring up, if we were to take away the subsidies and the government assistance, something like that is going to be more like $6.99 or $7.99. And that puts it on par with pretty close to what you pay for, say, I don't know, a veggie burger or something at Veggie Grill, right? To bring up an example. And then in a consumer mindset, then we have, I suppose, what you would call an even playing field. But the disadvantage to that is that there's a, not a lot of people that can go out and feed a family of four spending $6.99 or $7.99 per person. If I was in charge of things, what I would probably do is take away a lot of the subsidy money and say, start siphoning it or funneling it to organic farmers, plant-based manufacturing companies, people that are growing organic, sustainably, growing regenerative. And then, you know, the comment would come up, well, what about all the people growing GMO foods and, and all the, you know, animal farmers and whatnot? Well, here's the thing. There are programs that help farmers and producers transition to what they call a transitional program where they can go from growing GMO pesticide-laden crops to transitioning to organic. So that's an actual thing. So if we took a different chunk of our federal budget, took it away from the GMO foods, the toxic foods, the deleterious animal foods that people are eating, and start siphoning and funneling those funds to other farmers, or again, organic, regenerative, transitional, then I think we would start to see the prices of those organic foods dropping, right? We wouldn't see such prohibitively expensive prices on plant-based proteins, on superfoods, on organic foods, and then we would have a real even playing field, not where the prices are extraordinarily high for both conventional and organic foods, but that, hey, maybe people could go to a veggie grill or whatever you know healthier choice that they have, and instead of paying you know, $7.99, $10, whatever it is, it would be closer to that value meal they would be getting at a fast food restaurant. I think that's possible. I think it's just a matter of lobbying and it's a complicated thing. I'm not trying to make it sound simple, but there's a way to do it. It's just, are people willing and able and open enough to see that people need to have healthier food choices? Yeah, it certainly isn't a a simple thing. And I, I think for the listener, our biggest advice is just do what you can right now and 
if you really want to make something happen in the future, set that as your intention and not be attached to it. And so if money is a, a big concern for you, know that you're not alone. And there's a lot of different strategies that you can do financially. In fact, I wrote an ebook called Healthy Organic Vegan on a Budget for this reason, because I noticed so many people felt that money was getting in the way of them eating what they perceived as healthy, eating organic food and eating vegan, or it could be and or. So it could be one of those three things or all three combined. And I found a lot of really amazing strategies that you can use to eat those things without spending a lot of money. In fact, it can be really, really affordable. So it's, it's something that I've been interested in in many years, for many years. Yeah, I think the other tip too, and and I know you share this, Whitney, in, in your ebook, and we talked about it too in our, our video, Healthy, Healthy Vegan Cheapskates that we did. That is still one of my favorite videos we ever did on your YouTube channel. We'll link to that in the show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Uh, buying in bulk at discount clubs is one of the best things you can do. You know, a basic Costco membership is not that much money annually. And I actually went to Costco and did a huge shop right before lockdown was imposed here in the quarantine in middle of March here in Los Angeles. And I went with my mentor, Michael, who I mentioned frequently, and, and I did a, a big ass shop at Costco. And Costco had an extraordinary amount of, say, you know, beans and legumes and brown rice and quinoa frozen vegetables, fresh vegetables. I, I stocked up on so much. And when you buy in bulk, especially at a place like, again, we're using Costco or Sam's Club as an example, your price per pound drops dramatically. You know, If you buy, say, a 20-pound bag of organic brown rice or, again, dry lentils, dry beans, you can, again, eat, I, in my opinion, a pretty well-rounded, nutritionally balanced meal, whatever your preference is, and you just save a lot of money that way. So I want to encourage the the listener to look at buying in bulk, look at discount clubs and and buying in a higher volume of food. Because whenever you do that, again, your price per pound goes down. You might have more food to manage, you know, a higher volume of it, but you're going to actually save a lot of money in the long run that way. Yeah. And there, I mean, endless strategies. I, I've actually been wanting to update my ebook to a newer version of it because I wrote it in 2014, I believe. And so much has changed since that time. So that's something that I've been putting on the back burner for a while, but hope to get to. And this actually reminds me of a couple other topics that I wanted to explore on the show. One of them is something that I hadn't thought that much about, which is time affluence. Have you ever heard this phrase, Jason? No, I have no idea what it means. Time affluence. No. What would you guess it means? Man, if I had to leverage a guess, maybe the amount of time someone spends focusing on a particular subject or gaining expertise is somehow statistically linked to the amount of financial affluence that they have in their lives. Huh. Am I anywhere am I anywhere in the ballpark? Not quite. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Doesn't hurt to guess. Well, time affluence is a feeling that you have all day to do whatever you want. And in other words, you have sufficient time to pursue activities that are personally meaningful, to reflect and to engage in leisure. And the opposite of time affluence is time poverty, which is the feeling that one is constantly stressed, rushed, overworked, and behind. And I think this is really interesting because as we kind of pivot the conversation, the, the link is that we're talking about 
the privilege that we can have to purchase certain things, the privilege that we have to live a, a life based in wellness, which is often targeted towards kind of like the elite, right? It's very uh, targeted towards white people, a lot of women. And it's also something that tends to appeal or seem to be financially driven by people that have a lot of money. And I think it's interesting when we don't just think about food and drinks and whatever else you're purchasing, but what about things that you don't purchase like time and how time in itself is a privilege. First of all, we are not guaranteed any time in our life. None of us know how long we'll live. A lot of us kind of live as if we have an endless supply of time, but we certainly don't. And I think that COVID has opened a lot of our eyes to the way that we live and our priorities and how our schedules run. And, you know, some of us were or still are trying to figure out a routine that works for us and time just feels all over the place. But this idea of time affluence is really fascinating to me versus time poverty. And I haven't dug into it much. So I will, as we're discussing this, I'm going to go look up a few articles and try to better understand it. But as a jumping off point, I guess one way of looking at it is like, is it just a feeling or is it a situational thing? Like, do you have time affluence in that you can do whatever you want versus somebody with time poverty? Like, their job might be constraining or their lifestyle or their their situation, whether it be they have to work long hours in order to make ends meet or do they have children and so they don't have a lot of personal time because their time's going to their children or their families or, you know, all these different scenarios that we could be in. And if you think of it from a standpoint of affluence versus poverty or, or privilege versus not having that privilege, I think it's really fascinating. It brings up to me that movie that came out, I don't know, eight years ago, seven years ago with Justin Timberlake about how instead of physical currency, people would work to get time credits and it was somehow biologically implanted in their arm. And if they ran out of time, they would physically die. Do you remember that movie? Yes, I do. I don't know if I watched the entire thing, but I remember like one scene <laughs> Yeah, it's very visually stimulating. Yeah, it's it's almost as if in some ways... Our economic system, the way it's currently set up, first of all, it's a completely debt-driven economy. I mean, we can get into the the depth of that, but if you really look at how futures and short stocks and short sellers and prospection, and if we get to the heart of it, it's a debt-driven economy. The entire economy thrives on debt. The point is this. I think that we are in a a loop. We talked about this a little bit in the the hustle culture and the girl boss episode, this mentality of if I just work hard enough and I get enough money and I, I do the right things and make the right connections and blah, 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 that I'll somehow buy myself joy. I'll somehow buy myself success. I'll somehow buy myself fulfillment. But the question I think comes up, and this is a privilege too, of, of asking ourselves, what, what does joy mean to me? What does success mean to me? What does fulfillment mean to me? But unfortunately, I think we're, we're set up in an economic system where the people at the very top of the pyramid continue to benefit drastically and hold a ridiculous and exponential amount of more wealth than everyone at the middle or the bottom of the pyramid. And for lack of a better term, it's just a, it's a, it's a never-ending rat race. It's a never-ending debt-driven rat race where we're trading time for money all the time. And it's just interesting you posit this, Whitney, because I think one of the reasons that I have really been thinking more and more about leaving Los Angeles and, and not living in a big city is because of the 
you know, insane. And I'll say this, it, it's kind of an insane cost of living. I mean, the price of living in places like New York, San Francisco, London, LA, I mean, even places like Detroit, where I'm from, I mean, seeing what, what places are going for there. The point I think I'm trying to make is if you put yourself in a life situation where your cost of living isn't so astronomical, then perhaps one doesn't need to work as hard to buy oneself time and can have more leisure or contemplation or, or self-growth time because you're not constantly trying to make that monthly nut. And that's something that I've been meditating on a lot during this COVID period. It's fascinating too, because one of the articles I pulled up about time affluence shares a story that or shares a survey that was done in 2019, I think, when the article came out. And it found that over 2 million Americans revealed that 80% of the survey that they did, or people that took the survey is what I'm trying to say, uh, they revealed that they did not have the time to do everything they needed to do each day. And this felt to them like a time famine. And I think that's super fascinating because I certainly feel the same way a lot. And it's an interesting thing to reflect on because I make my own schedule. And yet every day it's like, I feel like I'm trying to play catch up. Like this weekend in particular, I decided to be a little bit more relaxed, whereas most days of the week I stick to a really rigid schedule. And sometimes I feel a little, I was going to say resentful, but maybe the word is like annoyed with myself that I'm choosing to try to pack so much into each day because it can get really draining. But as I've talked about in a, a previous episode, my current routine is based around things that are really supportive of me. So, wake, you know, having a, the same schedule every day, like even today, we're recording this on a Sunday, I woke up at 7am, you know, whereas in the past, most times of my life, I would sleep in on the weekends. But a lot of data says that you should stick to the same schedule even on the weekends, because it's better for your body. So I'm really working on that right now. And it's tough. <laughs> right. And I think I probably have a little bit of a sleep debt because I've been trying to pack so much into my day. And so I'm like compromising my sleep a little bit because I'm just like, don't feel like I have enough time. And then I work in time to work out because that's good for my physical and mental and emotional well-being. And I'm making time to enjoy my meals and cook meals and to check off my priorities off my list. But what's really fascinating to me and something I've been stepping back to examine a lot is that I seem to have a lot of priorities. <laughs> and the reality is like a priority is only a priority if other things aren't a priority, right? And so if you feel like you have so many priorities, like something has to go. And a lot of us just feel like we're short on time. And that can actually lead to feelings of depression, anxiety, and less happiness. So there's also evidence that says the people are not necessarily busier than before. It's just that we feel busier. And that's part of what I'm super fascinated by. And I notice this a lot. I, I've talked about on previous episodes how I really don't like the word busy. <laughs> but it's an easy way to describe this feeling. And I hear this word so much from people. We did a whole episode about this, which we'll link to in the show notes. It was one of our recent episodes. And I just, I do think it's a, a bit of an epidemic right now where so frequently when you talk to somebody and you ask them how they are, one of the most common things you'll hear is, oh, I've been really busy. 
But what does that even mean if we're not necessarily any busier than before? It's just more like we have this feeling of being busy. And then if you dig in further, you see that there's so much tension and stress and people just don't seem as happy. And I wonder if it is this issue of time famine. I would say also there's a level of a chemical or biological addiction to what is released and proliferated in the body when we feel anxious and stressed all the time. I've had to take a real look at periods of pretty dramatic emotional or physical burnout in my career and what led to that. And I think that if I look at perhaps the level of cortisol or adrenaline or stress hormones, I think that there is a level of chemical addiction people have to being stressed out and being anxious and worried about things and constantly feeling like never enough. And I've spent this this quarantine period, Whitney, it's interesting that you talk about packing as much into your day as possible because I, I've felt the pull to do that. But I've also at the same time been letting, I mean, naturally certain things have dropped away. I mean, you and I have a, I guess, certain number of speaking appearances. I, I certainly did. Both of us did conferences and festivals and whatnot. We had planned on doing a lot more traveling this year. And vis-a-vis COVID, all of those appearances got canceled. You know, we literally had the slate wiped clean from late February onward. So, you know, that's one big thing that I always look forward to, but also sometimes is stressful, you know, preparing for those talks and traveling and the fatigue and all that. But beyond that, I've chosen to remove specific aspects of my business and my career and not focus on them as much because they don't, first of all, don't bring me joy. And I was realizing that I think I was focusing on certain things just to keep up appearances or the fear of losing momentum or losing relevance. But a lot of the things that I was doing as a chef or nutrition educator, I'm just not doing anymore. You know, I'm not sending out newsletters anymore. I'm not paying for that. I've canceled a lot of subscriptions to certain business things. And yeah, to save money, yes, but also because I don't want to have that in my mental sphere. You know, I don't want to be thinking about paying these seven extra bills or, you know, focusing on these aspects of my business when they're not, first of all, they're not generating any profit right now. They're costing me money. I have no desire to continue down that path. But I guess my point is that when you talk about your schedule being really packed right now and, and feeling perhaps that there's not enough time in your day to do everything, I've just been really mindful of kind of going back to that Tim Ferriss article we read many, many episodes back. I'm looking for things to cut out and I'm looking to trim the fat, proverbially speaking, every single day of like, what doesn't bring me joy? What's not moving the needle forward? What's costing me more money than I'm bringing in? And what can I drop? You know, what can I let drop away? And that's actually felt really liberating you know, to bring up this point about feeling busy is I've just made a concerted effort to start cutting things away. And it's been feeling really good. There's actually a great article I I have been slowly working my way through. And it was called something like 31 things to say no to. And it goes into depth about how to say no to certain things. So you can say yes to others. And I'll link to that in the show notes because it's a really good read. And it, it helps you step back and examine your life and evaluate it and figure out your priorities and all of that. This also leads me to another topic I actually was reading about earlier today called anxiety privilege. What do you think that means, Jason? I think that for people that don't have to worry about necessarily like, I don't know, putting food on the table or making sure the rent is paid or the lights stay on or that that level of basic providing for one's life, maybe a lot of the anxiety privilege is around more existential things that are not really actually about day-to-day survival? Well, I was reading about this in an article called Panic as a Privilege or Panic as a Luxury. And in other words, it starts to feel a little indulgent when you consider 
that certain people like doctors, nurses, cleaners, grocery store clerks who are considered essential, they are doing things that they have to do versus stewing in their own anxiety. And these people who have long-faced danger every day just by living in their own bodies, like in other words, they don't, it seems like this article is saying they don't necessarily like have the choice of whether or not they get to do certain things. And COVID is actually giving a lot of us the taste of what it feels like to be marginalized. Many of the limitations that are imposed on by coronavirus, like limited mobility, difficulty in seeing friends and family, restricted access to cultural and social activities, are limitations experienced regularly by the elderly, by mobility-restricted people, etc. And so what constitutes as a crisis for some of us may be everyday life for others. And I thought this was a really interesting thing because I'm sure that applies to lots of things that we experience in life, not just coronavirus, but this idea that like a lot of people are are so focused on the fact that they're feeling anxious, but it's like, is this just a temporary feeling of anxiety and stress? Whereas for some people, they're facing that every day of their lives. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. I think it engenders a sense of of gratitude, first of all, for people in essential positions that, yeah, I mean, they don't have time to like indulge in a meltdown, right? Like they need to show up for work. Like that's a very different reality than someone who I suppose is stewing in their existential dread. I just, I keep using that. I keep using that phrase because I think there's a lot of theories being passed around. You and I have talked and dove into a lot of conspiratorial stuff and a lot of the divisiveness between the left and the right right now and all lives matter and black lives matter. There's a tremendous amount of divisiveness. And I think it's not necessarily that essential workers feel perhaps any of that dread or fear about the future, but it's like when you got to clock in every single day and people are counting on you, your family's counting on you, and you've chosen this profession, I don't know that you have as much time to indulge in those kind of thoughts. You know what I mean? Like enough time to repost conspiracy stuff and do all that. It's like, no, you got to clock in. And so for me, it just, it frames my reality completely different where you know, I'm currently on unemployment and I'm currently getting, you know, blessed to get benefits from other sources. And I've applied for a lot of assistance programs and received those. And I know a lot of people aren't receiving those and haven't received those. And that's another frame of reality of like, damn, the immense gratitude and privilege I feel to having been the recipient of those programs. You know, I mean, there's so many layers to this, Whitney. I think the interesting thing, though, that I bring up, right, if we talk about how people are compensated and we talk about warehouse workers say bringing up Amazon, you know, fighting for a $15 an hour minimum wage while Jeff Bezos inches ever closer to being a trillionaire or you have CEOs and wealth managers and people on Wall Street at, at all and you have doctors and nurses and caregivers and all these people struggling to make a living, you know, to me it just it goes back to the stark blatant income equality and the fractures of our economic system but also like what's essential? Are stockbrokers essential? Are wealth managers essential? Are CEOs essential? Are are what you know? What is the nature of an essential position? Because if we're calling doctors and caregivers and delivery people and restaurant workers and food producers and farmers and people in these quote essential positions, doesn't that automatically imply that there are a hell of a lot of jobs that are unessential? I think it it is all a matter of perspective, and it is very relative as well. And 
that's why it's important to discuss these things and just take a step back because we can get so caught up in our own worlds, our own experiences, and pretty much everything that we feel and think is relative to what someone else is going through. And so the more that we can become aware of what other people are experiencing and the privilege that we have in our lives, we can be grateful for it and we can also do something about it not take it for granted, but see, can we share that with other people? And I think that's part of where we can get to a point of more equality, where we're not leaving other people out. We're not taking advantage of them. You know, going back to the original conversation about food, it's like, you know, what did it take for that to get into your shopping cart? A, a literal or digital shopping cart, right? Is who was making it? Like, who are these farmers? And and are they paying, being paid a fair wage? Are they being treated well? You know, at what cost in which do you get to save money, whereas somebody else might not be making enough money to pay their bills? I mean, this is a big thing as well and why it's so important to be mindful of who you're buying from. You know, and going to Amazon, one thing that Jason and I have been working towards is using less and less affiliate links that point to Amazon. So if you didn't know this, oftentimes when we mention a brand or a product, we will link to an, an affiliate program. And for a long time, many years actually, individually, Jason and I have been using Amazon affiliates because, well, for two reasons. One, it's really easy to use Amazon's affiliate program. It's like you type in a product name, you find the link to it. There's like a, a little shortcut you can use and you instantly have this link. And then if somebody buys something based on clicking through your link, you'll get a commission for it. So for example, if you bought like a matcha that we recommended, not in this case Peak Tea because Peak has their own program I'll tell you about in a moment, but but uh, let's just say a, a random company, right, that sells on Amazon, we will get paid a certain amount of, of money for that. But here's the catch is that we also have to step back and, and look at this. So you might not be paying us any extra, but the company isn't essentially, they're having to pay us uh, for as kind of like a thank you for recommending their product. But then Amazon's taking their commission too. So, you know, I think a lot of companies are struggling because they put up something on Amazon and they have to make the the price competitive. So they have to bring it down to a rate that makes sense where people might, who might compare two products would buy something, not just because of cost, right? And there's so many factors that go into selling on Amazon, not to mention the, the environmental concerns and the worker concerns, as Jason's mentioning here. Somebody sells their product on Amazon, they might not necessarily be shipping it from their factory. It might go to the Amazon warehouse and it's being shipped there. And then there's all these employees there. And I've seen some behind the scene footage of what it's like to work at Amazon. And it it's pretty chaotic because now there's all this time pressure. Like, how quickly can I get this product shipped to me? I don't want to wait. And we become so impatient that we want things as quickly as possible. And then you have services like Amazon Prime that guarantees you're going to get it in like two days or something. And you have to look at like what it takes to get that product, not just from the the farm, if it's a food product or whatever it is, even if it's not like it could be cotton or something, right? It's It has to be grown, then it has to be picked and then processed and it goes through this whole uh, factory and then it goes to the shipping warehouse and there's somebody that has to put it in the box and, you know, do the accounting, all of these different factors, all these roles that people play just to send you something through Amazon. 
And there's a lot of information over the years that feels out of alignment with us when it comes to Amazon because, you know, the workers might not be getting a fair wage and they might be not be treated very well. And the companies that are selling the products might be not making as much money as they would like. But there's a lot of pressure to sell on Amazon because that's one of the most popular places to buy. Right. So it, it's really tricky. I mean, speaking of, of a complicated change that we have to make here for Jason and I, we are trying to not recommend or link to products on Amazon. Instead, we're trying to find them elsewhere. So in the case of Peak Tea, for example, I think they do sell on Amazon, but we're going to link directly to their website and we'll be using our affiliate link. It takes a little bit more work on our end, but by doing that, you get to compensate that company directly. They get to make more money. They might be able to offer you a better price, if not the same as Amazon. And it's kind of more contained and it's a little bit more ethical in a lot of ways. Maybe they have better shipping practices. Maybe they pay their workers better, right? And when I talk about this being a complex thing, it's that there's just so many factors. You know, with people that are used to buying on Amazon, it's a big shift mentally to have to go to a different website and buy from there. And it's interesting because you're seeing a lot of brands now shifting the way that they're shipping their products and they have to cut their prices in order to compete with Amazon. And at what cost is that happening? I want to bring up something I did yesterday, Whitney, that I I don't know about proud of myself. That's That's not really the right adjective. So my mentor, Michael, we have a, a group, a biweekly group that we've been doing almost since I met him, you know, almost for 10 years where we are talking about how do we conduct ourselves with clarity and joy and effectiveness and be good human beings on the planet. He calls it transformational anthropology. And oftentimes he'll recommend a book to me. So he recommended this book. And my first instinct was like, I'll go check the price on Amazon. And I checked the price. And then I thought, you know what? I have not been to a bookstore and there are three bookstores that I love here in Los Angeles, independent bookstores. And I haven't been to them since quarantine was imposed back in March. And so yesterday I was like, I'm going to call around to these bookstores and see if somebody has a copy of this. So so mind you, it was $10 on Amazon for a new copy of this book. And I called around to Skylight Books in Los Feliz. There is Book Soup in West Hollywood. And then probably my favorite is the last bookstore in downtown LA. It's a massive beautiful independent bookstore. It is gorgeous. If you're ever in LA or any Angelinos who haven't been, it's a phenomenal experience. So I called, they had a used copy for less money than Amazon. So first of all, I'm not printing a new book, right? I'm not contributing to that. I'm buying a book that's gently used for less money and I'm supporting the financial prosperity of an independent bookstore, which by God, I want to have them stay around. Like if our bookstores go away, to me, that that's crushing to me. Like that, that I feel like bookstores and libraries and repositories of knowledge and information and perspective are crucial. So I drove all the way, you know, down there, which wasn't that far of a drive, but walked into this bookstore, got to be in that beautiful energy, bought this book, saved money, and supported an independent seller. And I want to endeavor to do more of that to piggyback on what you're saying, Whitney. Is yes, did it cause me more time? Sure. Did I enjoy the hell out of it because I got to go one of my favorite bookstores? Yeah, and I ended up saving money anyway. So for us to think differently, even if it requires more energetic output or effort, if we align our spending with our values, I think that we have a better sense of self. You know what I mean? It's like we lay our head down at night and we're like, I did something good, even if it's a seemingly simple, innocuous act like that. I guess my point is I I just want to see where I can do more of that in my life. I wholeheartedly agree. And I think 
we also need to address the fact that the fact that you were able to go do all of those things is a privilege. You needed to be close enough to that bookstore and feel comfortable going to that bookstore and you know, the privilege or the the luck that you had that something was in stock. And I think the other side of Amazon that's really important to discuss too is it does have a major convenience factor. And much like going to a fast food restaurant is convenient financially and time-wise, Amazon's very convenient financially and time-wise. And, and for me over the years, I haven't felt fully in alignment with recommending Amazon as a place to buy. But the reason I have done it is because it's accessible and accessibility is incredibly important too. And that's very similar to me supporting fast food chains like Burger King or Carl's Jr. As a whole, I wouldn't recommend people eat there, but a lot of people do eat there. They're used to eating there. They find it very accessible. So the fact that there are plant-based products there is really cool because it's making plant-based foods more accessible. Same thing with Amazon, right? Like if you if you want to go vegan or you want to live more mindfully or increase your well-being, if you want to buy something, whether it's a book or a food product or a drink or whatever else you're trying to find, knowing that you can quickly go to Amazon and read some reviews and get free shipping and find a really good price makes that an easier process. And so we have to remember as well that it's not simple for everybody to just switch to another place, you know, just as it isn't simple for us. Like we recommend a lot of books on this podcast and Amazon actually started as a bookseller. That was all they did sold in the very beginning days of Amazon. So it's it's over time become known as a great place to get books. But if we're going to recommend something, like we certainly could just link to the directly to the book author's website. And in some cases, we may do that. But in full transparency, a lot of the times we're using our affiliate links because we feel like, well, if somebody's going to buy something, we might as well make a small commission from it because that supports our business and our work, which you know, right now with the podcast, we're not like rolling in the dough with it. So every little dollar really helps us. It's part of the reason we have a Patreon and a part of the reason that we work with sponsors and things like that. But, you know, it's been a big shift for us mentally to try to figure out like, okay, well, if we don't, if we're not going to recommend something on Amazon, where do we direct people? And the thing that is frustrating to me is that it's not that easy to find some of these sources, you know, like uh, even in recommending a bookstore, there's no guarantee it's going to be in stock there. But I found a couple websites for a smaller book companies that you can be an affiliate for. And it's a complicated process just to make a link for it, you know, <laughs> and then like our time becomes a huge factor here. So it kind of comes back to this big big point, which is it's not always easy to change and you just have to do it in small increments and and take a, a point that Jason said, which is to congratulate yourself for these small steps, whether it's going to a local bookstore and buying something or buying online from a smaller business and just saying, wow, you know, I'm really proud of myself for doing that because that wasn't easy. It wasn't as easy as buying from somewhere like Amazon, you know, just as if you go to Burger King, you can make a very easy decision just to get their impossible burger instead of their meat-based burger, right? That's a simple choice that you can make while sticking in your current routine. And I think that that helps a lot of people when they have an option that doesn't involve a huge change in their routine. I think the other thing that I've been sitting with recently, and it's not it's not a new consideration, Whitney, is is that 
progress over perfection in terms of our ethical choices or sustainability choices or or trying to support companies, products, politicians, movements, things that I suppose we feel are doing more good than harm. As we're exploring that, and certainly I think you and I having these conversations about ethics and and how to make more ethical choices, you know, there's no such thing as being perfectly ethical. There is a certain amount of harm and we need to be really, really honest about the reality of that in a lot of choices we make, even if they are, quote, better choices or more compassionate choices or more ethical choices. When we took our road trip last year in your Tesla, you know, we killed thousands of bugs. You know, it's just a reality, right? And in the manufacture of electric car batteries, and I'm not doing this to single out Tesla, but these are, these are thoughts that I have late at night. It's the extreme amount of environmental stress and stress on the workers who are mining cobalt for electric car batteries. And as they move toward a million mile car battery, I emailed you that really great article yesterday that are going to be less cobalt or cobalt free. Like there are steps with all of this. But my point I think in this is in our crops that we're farming and, and people bring this up all the time, like, well, if you're vegan, you're killing all these animals because as the rototillers and the, the farming machines go through, they kill insects and mice. It's like, look, the way that our reality is set up right now, whatever nature of reality we're in, there's no such thing as do no harm. There just isn't. Can we reduce the amount of harm? Absolutely. And for me, I think that is one of my driving principles in being alive. I I guess, I don't know, a life mission perhaps is that how can I lessen the amount of harm and extend more equanimity and fairness and respect and compassion to other living beings, human and animal, right? But to think that we're not going to do any harm based on the way we eat or the way we drive or what we consume, there's harm in the cycle no matter what. Can we drastically reduce it? Yes. But to remove harm completely, I don't think is something that we can achieve, at least not the way the system is set up right now and how many people are on the planet with almost 8 billion people. There's going to be harm somewhere in the product cycle. But I think aiming to drastically reduce it rather than elimination, I think is a more realistic perspective. Well, this has certainly been a interesting exploration for us. And we hope the same is true for you, the listener. We're going to wrap up this and move towards something that we do at the end of every episode called Frequently Asked Queries, in which we explore some of the things that people are typing on the internet to find our show. And it kind of gives us a peek into people's minds a bit thanks to Google Analytics. And what we do is we have broken, or I have broken them down into a few categories. And usually in our episodes, we end talking about brands that we love and and we've shouted out a bunch of them today already. But something that ties into some of the queries that have been coming up. By the way, one of our most common things, subject matters that people find our, our podcast through is by searching for something sleep related. There, there are a lot of queries that have the word sleep in it or rest or, or else relaxing. So interesting. That's really interesting for sure. And and we've talked about a brand that we love called Swanwick recently. So I want to start by shouting them out. They make the blue blocker glasses, which have been really helpful for both me and Jason and actually ties into the book conversation and the sleep conversation and overall wellness. So for me, my routine is to wear my Swanwick blue blocking glasses every night while I'm reading in bed. And that's a big part of my routine. I read for 15 to 30 minutes every night that helps me fall asleep. And I found that the blue blocking glasses help me 
become tired. Like it's just like that exposure to blue light can be so stimulating. And there's something very soothing about cutting that out by wearing those glasses. So a lot of people seem to be struggling with sleep based on some of the queries I've been reading. A few other brands that tie into queries, there were numerous queries about sleep masks, uh, specifically like blackout sleep masks and sleep masks that you can buy from Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> I guess someone, someone was thinking of that specifically as well as Bluetooth sleeping eye masks and sleeping eye masks with headphones. So if you're curious about these things, there are three brands to shout out here. And Jason, let me know if if I'm leaving out one that you wanted to bring up. One that we've both used is called Bucky. They make wonderful sleep masks that we did actually buy from Bed Bath & Beyond initially. And what's cool about them is they're very comfortable. They block out a lot of light and they have like these little pockets, like they pop out. They're not flat against your eyes. And I initially, I think I thought they were there for not like messing up your makeup. I think that was part of their marketing, which is like if you were flying on a plane or something and you wanted to put on a sleep mask, it wouldn't mess up your makeup or whatever. I, I don't know if that's completely true. but Precisely I think, why I bought mine. Precisely. Well, that's what I was going to say is yeah. that for men who choose not to wear makeup, I think it also helps with eyelashes. So if you're blinking or something, it's a little bit more comfortable to wear a sleep mask that extends beyond your eyes. So Jason and I used to wear that brand a lot. And I'm saying the name, they just called Bucky, right? Yeah, that's correct. Because they make other things like is that is this are they called Bucky because they use like buckwheat in some of their products or something or is that just a cute name? I do not know. I don't know, but I actually lost yeah, mine. I, just, I, I I lost mine. I lost my Bucky. I looked it up and yeah, it did have they have like some buckwheat <laughs> products. They sell a number of things, but I think they're most known for their sleep masks and the fact that they help with be more comfortable and they call them deeply molded cups that allow you to blink freely. And so I really like those, but actually another brand of sleep masks I became more fond of. And I, I think you have one of these too, Jason. It's called the Dream Sleeper. I do. I When I lost my Bucky, coincidentally, I got the Dream Sleeper right after. And so I've been using been using that one instead. Yeah. And I, I really like the Dream Sleeper eye mask because it's super thick in multiple ways. Like it, it covers a huge portion of your face. And it's also thick in terms of material. And it's incredibly comfortable. It just goes flat around. There's some Velcro. It's just very well made. I, I met the, the owner of that company a while back, and he's very passionate about this. They have a great like guarantee. I think I forget what it is exactly. I can look it up. But I remember there being like some amazing assurance if you bought the products. Let me see here. They are sold on Amazon. But if you want to buy directly from their website, we'll put that there too. They're made from a silky satin with a micro cotton interior, and it's designed to block out 100% of light. And the Velcro also helps make sure that it's comfortable on, on any head shape or size, and it's hyperallergenic. Oh, here it is. If you lose it, we will replace it for free. And that, I was like, what do you mean? If you lose, like, I think they actually will replace it for you. That if you buy it within one year, if you lose it or damage it, they will give you another one, which to me is 
shocking. And I think they build that into the price. It's about $30. So it's on the pricier side, but you know that if you leave it on the airplane or leave it at somebody's home or who knows what happened to Jason's Bucky mask, right? They don't have that guarantee. So that's one one cool little perk of, of Dream Sleeper. And I, I think they're really comfortable, don't you? I think they're comfortable. The only thing is that my ears get too hot. <laughs> yeah, I... I big issue. Well, 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 it is because I sleep really hot. My body temperature is is pretty hot when I sleep. So consequently, I have a fan going and I have an air filter and there's a lot of cool air circulation in the room. But yeah, I've just noticed that I love the dream sleeper, the comfort. I love how much light it blocks out. But yeah, my ears get way too hot. So maybe there's a version with ear ventilation they can come out with. I don't know. That's very specific. It is pretty specific, but you can't be the only one. The other product I want to shout out on this subject is sleep phones, and they are headphones that are designed to go flat against your ear. And I have two pairs of them, one that have a cord. This is I bought these originally for my trip to Greece, I think was why I got these, because I I was taking so many flights and such long periods of time, I wanted to be able to sleep really well. And you know, when you put your average headphones into your ears, they hurt if you lean on them, if you press your head against them. And I wanted to be able to like block out noise on the airplane. And so I got them, absolutely loved them. And then I started wearing them to listen to white noise without disturbing somebody else. So if you're sharing a room or a bed with somebody else and they don't like white noise, the cool thing about the sleep phones is you can put them on and they have the Bluetooth version as well without the cord. Although the cord I didn't find to be like a big issue. So if you don't want Bluetooth on your head, which is understandable, you can get the corded pair and they're designed to be like a really long cord. Plus they don't really tangle very easily. So I recommend both of them. And you can listen to all sorts of music and nature sounds like thunderstorms or rain or whatever you find is calming. You can listen to different types of white noise. I think they might even ship with like some audio tracks or something. They also have one that's specifically designed for ASMR because I think so many people like listening to ASMR to relax or to fall asleep, which is pretty neat. So the last thing is, is that I've actually used those headphones to put over my eyes. They're not really designed for that, but they can cover your eyes or you can wear them as kind of like a headband and then wear a sleep mask on top of them, which is actually pretty comfortable too. And they are very effective for snoring. So if you're sleeping next to somebody or in, or sleeping in the same room with somebody who's snoring, the sleep phones are fantastic. So those are my recommendations for sleep-related eye masks out there. <laughs> and hopefully that helps anybody who's searching for that. All right. So we have the funny category, the interesting, and the serious category here. So, oh, I thought this one was funny, Jason. Somebody was searching for a podcast called Poop Problems Podcast. Is this a real podcast? I'm I'm about to find out, but I would love to know what do you think this podcast discusses? I think it is in fact uh, real. Probably gastrointestinal issues, digestive health how to optimize one's digestion. Like a serious podcast? Or do you think it's like funny stories about poop? I would have to think that (laughs) maybe it's both. (laughs) I would tune in. If it was one or the other, I might be reticent to tune in. But if it is giving me actual useful information about gut health and digestive health and also sharing funny poop stories, I'm in. 
I am in. Well, you're in luck because the Poop Problems podcast is a real podcast and their tagline is 99 problems, but poop ain't one. Well, yes, (laughs) it actually is. (laughs) Oh my God. What? Please indulge me in some of the topics. Please. It says they're here to offer helpful humor. They laugh and joke a lot, but they also offer solutions to serious poop problems. Listen in to hear about daily struggles, ongoing challenges, and memorable poops. <laughs> I got to listen to this. And it's it's hosted by two women, which I also assumed it was going to be like two guys or, or something, but it looks like it's got a nice feminine touch, which I think is also really interesting because women, I think, struggle a lot to talk about poop. Like it's an embarrassing thing. <laughs> You know, do you find that women are uncomfortable? I mean, I I remember actually when we were dating, I felt so uncomfortable talking about anything poop or bowel related (laughs) with you, Jason. But do you find that women that you know as friends and or women that you've dated don't like to talk about poop? Or do you feel like you attract women that like to talk about it? Like, what's your experience? The great majority of women that I know do not like to discuss poop. And I've asked why. And I think it's because it destroys the illusion that they don't poop. Which that is somehow so there 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 is some illusion that wants to, and this is not me paraphrasing, this is what's been told to me, that that there's an illusion of dainty femininity and sexual desirability that they feel will be ruptured and or shattered. If I am too aware of the fact that A, they poop, which duh, I know you do but that they discuss it or fart around me or you know make light of the fact that they're in the bathroom too long. I've been with two women off the top of my head that literally couldn't give a shit. <laughs> they were, you know, perfectly comfortable with it, but the great majority That makes of- sense. You can't say they literally don't give a shit because they do give a they- shit. <laughs> yeah. But the great majority of of women that I know are are very hesitant to talk about it, discuss it or even admit that it happens. Is that true in your current dynamic? No, she's totally open about it. So she's one of two? Yes. Wow. Correct. Wow. How does that feel? Is it like kind of refreshing to be with a woman that doesn't care? Or or could you care less how a woman handles her poop or shit? I, I, it's neither here nor there. I do find it amusing though, of this illusion that wants to be maintained of like, I'm just, I, I'm a woman and I just, I poop, I poop flowers and cotton candy and unicorns. You know, it's like, it's just, it's just a bizarre link between defecation and desirability. I I don't know. It's, it's an odd link in my mind. So to me, it's neither here nor there. I just find that that illusion of like, we're going to act like we don't poop is just an interesting, I don't, is it a cultural thing? Is it a learned behavior? How do you feel about that? I mean, it's fascinating because I think there's a lot of shame and and I wonder if it's just for women, but there's like this idea with men that men are like stinking up the bathroom and men are like farting all the time and like burping. And, you know, it's like it's like something that you don't necessarily like, but it's acceptable. And yet for women, it's like, you know, weird if you're the woman who's comfortable with that, you know, and, and it's it's kind of this thing you you skirt around. I mean, I've actually been like that. I mean, it's it's something that I felt a lot of embarrassment around and there's very few people in my life that I feel comfortable talking about it with like or I mean, listen, I don't mind talking about it when it's not related to me. <laughs> you know, like talking about poop in general is not embarrassing for me, but I don't 
want people to know much about my specific situation. Like I feel very uncomfortable if somebody hears me going to the bathroom or if if it's smelly that day or whatever else, or, or I'm in there for too long, like you mentioned, like those things I've built up a lot of shame around and especially true in romance. It's It's not that I don't think that somebody like it's not like I'm trying to convince anyone that it doesn't happen, but there's shame tied into those acts, and it's like so uncomfortable in those moments if if you feel like somebody hears you or they smell it or something like that just is still incredibly uncomfortable for me, you know, and yeah. I think it's true for yeah. most people, and no wonder there's products out there like poopery that have become so popular. But I, you know, we're big fans of the brand Squatty Potty and and Jason and I, I have, do I have just have two? I think I just have two. I have, I have the portable Squatty Potty and I have the wooden uh, or bamboo Squatty Potty and Jason's had his for a while too. And we love them. And those are conversation pieces, right? Like when somebody goes into your bathroom and sees that, it's funny like to monitor. Some people just pretend it's not there and they just don't ask because they're too embarrassed. And then some people, it turns into this whole conversation about it. And that's always interesting as well. Uh, but I actually, I, I proudly travel with my portable squatty potty. And that that's something that I'm not embarrassed about in relationships. I've actually found a lot of men that I've dated have been embarrassed about it as well. Jason, you were not, but certainly some guys <laughs> were like shy about it. You know, like they didn't want me to hear them going to the bathroom either. They didn't, you know, I've been with men that would never fart in front of me and some that proudly did it. You know, I've been with guys that weren't really embarrassed about smell, but like some that were really conscious about it and always spraying air freshener or lighting candles or telling you not to go into a certain room or whatever. So I actually think that men struggle with this a lot too. We could do a whole episode on this. Actually. Yeah. And you know what it would be called? What? We're down with OPP. <laughs> Other people's poop. <laughs> yep. Yep. I can see I it now. Bad. I feel bad for anyone who tuned into this episode, got a few minutes in, heard us talking about matcha, and they were like, man, this is boring. And then they completely missed the poop conversation. So yeah. anyone who's listening, like, or or it could have been the opposite. Like they loved hearing us talk about matcha and time anxiety and all that stuff. But as soon as we talked about poop, they were out. Yeah. It's it's gonna be interesting to look at the metrics of uh, of abandonment, listener abandonment. Yeah. I, we actually don't have access to that, really? unfortunately. I, I, I'm sad that we we don't, but well, I guess also the, kind of happy because I would spend way too much time looking. You at would, you details. would, you would, and then you would send me texts being like, "People love the poop episode; they want more." <laughs> and the next well, thing you know, we're talking about you know fecal transplants and our greatest poops and relationship dynamics around wait, it. And do you I have mean, we really greatest, do you have a greatest poop? Like off the cuff, you have a greatest poop story. I mean, there are a few. Yeah, there, there are. Are you serious? Yeah, there, there are a few where, like, where you, know, you call somebody into the room to see it type where, of story. Where, 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 like, I've gotten up and I've like looked down and I've audibly gasped at the size of it. Like, oh my god! Like that came out of my body. What the. F- like there's been a few where it was like I can't believe that came out of my body. Oh man, yeah. You know, it's. I wish that people were more comfortable. There's since there's a few people like my sister and I can openly talk about this, and so that makes sense knowing your sister. Yes. Yeah. Like any time we we we. 
I get really gross with my sister. But there's like also, I don't think I could like call her into the bathroom and show her something. Like there's there's a boundary there. I don't know anybody that I could do that with. But isn't it funny how like sometimes you have those moments where you want you want other people to witness something because you're so shocked by it? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think there's definitely like a communal aspect to to humans where they're like, you have to see this astonishing thing that just so happened to come out of my body. Oh my God. Wait, have you ever, do you know anybody who you could do that with? Like you could show them that and they wouldn't be like completely revolted? I don't know about in person. I think if I were to take a picture on my iPhone and bombard them with it, that would probably be acceptable, but I don't know about that. Who? I mean, I could probably do it to Laura, who I'm dating right now. Maybe our mutual wow. friend. Maybe our mutual friend me, Ellie. I don't know. That to me sounds like true love. If you can, you could send somebody a picture of your poop, and they wouldn't be like, "I'm sorry, you crossed a line." <laughs> mm. I don't know that I'm keen to try that out, but I just have a gut intuition that there's yeah, there's a few people that they'd be like, "Wow, okay, damn." <laughs> you know, they send they send me like the hand clap emoji back. Oh my! I don't know. God. I don't, this is a very bizarre tangent. Welcome to This Might Get Uncomfortable if it's your first time. Also tangential AF. Yep. True. But this right, is real well, life. You know, this is like this is like Whitney and I sitting in a room talking about life. That's essentially what, what this is. Do. And, you know, back to your point, Jason, since we aren't able to see where people drop off of the shows and we don't really know what people like and don't like unless they tell us, I would like to remind you, the listener, that there are a few different ways that you can share your thoughts and feelings on these episodes. So one is social media. You can reach us at Wellevator, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. You can direct message us. You can comment on photos or whatever else we're posting. You can go to our website, podcast.wellevator.com. And there's a comment section at the end of every show notes that you can comment on. And Jason monitors that. Do people comment often? We've had a handful. We don't get a ton of comments. Recently, though? Um, Have we had any recently? Not in, say, the past two weeks. But I think that's kind of apropos of people commenting on blog posts and show notes anyway. I've talked to colleagues of ours, and it seems that comments on blogs and or show notes have just they're, they're not really something people do it's more of a social media thing so right whatever your level of comfort is dear listener you can shoot us an email as whitney said to hello at wellevator.com i think that's probably the highest level of correspondence we get direct uh, mess we do get a lot of direct messages we do get a lot of dms people will be sliding into those instagram dms as <laughs> they do There's also another great thing that we would love from you, and some of you have done this, so thank you to anyone who's filled out our survey. So we created a little survey through one of the services that we use for the podcast, and it just tells us some information about your listening habits and who you are. And we use that information to better understand who our listeners are, to kind of paint a picture. And the information I've received so far has been really enlightening. So let me find that link. That will be in the show notes, but I also want to read it out loud. It's at podcast.wellevator.com slash survey. So again, podcast.wellevator, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com slash survey, S-U-R-V-E-Y. Or again, if you go to the show notes for this episode, you can find that link and we would love for you to fill that out. 
it shouldn't take you very long. And if there's anything that we can do in exchange, you know, ask us a question or if you want us to share anything with you, just send us an email. We'd be happy to do that. And it's anonymous too. So you can fill it out and and share your information. We'll never know who did it and who didn't do it. But we really hope that you do do it. (laughs) All right. So we're going to do two more queries and then we're going to officially wrap up this episode. The first one actually kind of ties into what we've been talking about here. This falls into the interesting category, in my opinion. Somebody searched how did humans sleep without pillows? Like, I wonder, is it like, um, what's that term where you're not asking, you're not actually looking for an answer. You're just kind of like wondering Mm. what's that called when you ask a question, a rhetorical question. Yes, exactly. That's, that's the word. Like, is that a rhetorical question or did they actually want to know how humans slept without pillows? I was actually just talking to Laura about this the other day and laughing my ass off about it because I thought, I want to thank whoever invented the mattress because at some point, somebody was like, you know what? This sleeping on the ground thing, you know, I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to sleep on the ground. And, you know, so I'm going to take, I'm going to spin this fabric, this cotton and make a thing called a sheet and I'm going to take some wood and build a box and I'm going to stretch the fabric over the thing. And then I'm going to smelt these things called coils out of metal, put them in the box along with a thing called, I mean, can you imagine the first mattresses, how rudimentary and bizarre they must have been and what people must have thought like, you know, like Horatio, what are you building? I don't know what it's called, but it's going to be more comfortable than the ground. Like that was an innovative person. I, I actually want to go and do a search and find out what is the etymology and history of the mattress. But honestly, I mean, at some point people were just sleeping on the ground, right? And then someone was like, this shit ain't comfortable. Let's make it more comfy. So I don't know. At some point people just decided mattresses and pillows were a much more comfortable option. Yeah. I mean, and we've all slept without a, a pillow at some point, like whether you're leaning over on the the tray table at an airplane and trying to sleep on your arms or lay on the side of of the plane or on somebody's shoulder or something. I feel like most people have had that experience or, you know, you're desperate to sleep. You could be sleeping in your car or on the ground. I mean, I've been in all sorts of funny scenarios just desperate to sleep. One major memory that comes to mind for me is when I worked at the Apple store. I was always tired. And I think that was because a lot of my shifts were in the morning and they were long and I would get bored because retail can be really boring. And I would try to take naps on my breaks. And back in the early days when I worked for Apple, which was from 2005 to 2012, I think, they were very lenient the first few years that I was there. And then actually when the the financial crash happened. What was that? 2008? Uh, things got really different. And Apple in general is always evolving, but they were like super laid back those first year, the first year or two that I was there. And so they, the managers and the, the, just the, the culture of working for Apple, you could basically do whatever you wanted as long as you were helping people and selling things. And it was like, just have fun with it. And so we would all, we would do crazy things like sleep on top of the computer boxes and like build like nests and like caves and tree houses and stuff on and sleep on top of the big Apple computer boxes. And that was perfectly acceptable. Like in the back room, we would build like these forts out of the boxes <laughs> and just go take naps on them. That's amazing. Like that, 
whatever you wanted. And then over time, they got a little stricter at Apple <laughs> for better or for worse. And um, I just remember like curling up in the corner underneath the desk and like sleeping. Like it was just whatever, you know, grabbing a sweater or something that I had and turning that into a pillow. So it's an interesting question. And again, I don't know if it's rhetorical or not. It must, it probably isn't. If you're going to Google something, you probably actually want an answer. There is some data that says that sleeping without a pillow might be better for your neck and spine. And there are all sorts of different types of pillows that you can use too. So I think it's a big experiment. Some people sleep on their sides. Some people sleep on their back. I think a smaller population of people sleep on their stomachs. And so it depends on what posture, what mattress you have, what scenario you're in. Like there's a lot of factors that go into pillow choices. So it's fascinating. Maybe we need to bring on like a sleep expert. I think that's actually a wonderful idea. Like having a whole episode on sleep, I think would be amazing. Yeah, for sure. A lot of people are interested in that. Um, actually, and and let me use our a couple queries that are related to sleep and, and on more of the serious side. And I think, Jason, you can answer these. I'm going to read you three, which because they all kind of tie into each other. And, and I feel like you would have some good perspective on this. So the first query is, couldn't sleep because of anxiety. So I'd love to know for Jason, when you're experiencing, I know that you've struggled to sleep sometimes because of anxiety. The second query is how to energize yourself after no sleep. And this all ties back into the original topic, what we started with on this episode, which is about matcha and getting energy from things like that. And then third, how to fall asleep when you're not tired. So what have you done in those times where you have anxiety and you can't sleep? How do you fall asleep when you don't feel tired? And then how do you energize your, yourself if you don't get any sleep? Well, I'll just do this quickly. So the anxiety part, I think there's a combination. You mentioned reading before bedtime, meditation before bedtime, and doing like deep cyclical breathing. We always talk about the benefits of breath work. And then also for me, taking specific supplements to help calm my nervous system. I'm a big, big fan of magnesium, whether it's the Calm brand or there are plenty of liquid ionic magnesiums. My favorite brand is Mineral Life. I also like to take CBD before bedtime or in some cases when I have extreme anxiety, cannabis. And then there's also really wonderful sleep formula, an herbal sleep formula from a, a brand called Symbiotica, and it's a roomy sleep formula. So I, if I'm having a ton of anxiety and I'm worried about not sleeping, I will do a combination of all those things. I'll meditate. I'll do some reading to distract my brain from the anxiety. But then I will also take a litany of sleep supplements. The magnesium, elderflower is great. In terms of eating before bed, I don't really recommend it. I think, you know, I have found that eating too close to bedtime tends to keep my brain awake and increase my anxiety. So really, really quickly, I tend to rely on all of those things too. And also taking a bath before bedtime. I found that if I have a lot of anxiety, if I take a nice hot bath with Epsom salts, that tends to relax me and, and really allay some anxiety too. The second question was, how do I get myself to sleep? Well, wait, before, well, maybe you're about to say this, but uh, but I, I would also say Swanwick is a big part of your routine as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if I, especially if I'm working at night or looking at screens or reading at night, I put on my blue blockers from from Swanwick and that helps also. That's also a, a fundamental part of my sleep sleep hygiene, they call it. 
And what was the second question? Well, one of them was about, I just changed my setting, so I have to go back and look at this. Uh, the second two were how to energize yourself after no oh, sleep right. and how to fall asleep when you're not tired. Yeah, how to energize yourself. Well, I've had a lot of insomnia over the past three years, and so I've dealt with periods of not sleeping well. For me in the morning, matcha, we go back to the beginning of this episode, it has been great because I don't get the caffeine crash. And the key component in matcha that turns your brain on is in an amino acid called L-theanine, which helps with memory, cognition, brain function. So the L-theanine in matcha has been great for me when I need to wake up after a night of no sleep. Also, the breath of fire technique, which is quick, short bursts of air that you go in and out through your nose very quickly, helps to oxygenate the blood and turn your brain on. So breath of fire as a breath work practice has been amazing for waking up and then also moving the body, dancing, doing jumping jacks, running in place, like getting the blood flow and getting the energy through your body. Those are three very, very basic things that I would say to wake your ass up if you've had a bad night of sleep. And then the third thing. The third one was, how do you fall asleep when you don't feel tired? Yeah. I mean, again, I kind of go back to a lot of the recommendations I said at the beginning, which is don't, I recommend not eating two to three hours before bedtime, drinking something like chamomile or elderflower tea, taking magnesium, hops, a melatonin or a GABA supplement. Again, the Rumi supplement from Symbiotica or one of the more potent magnesiums and also not working before bedtime. If you're scrolling through your iPhone and you're getting bombarded by Instagram or TikTok, which is just constant barrage of content, or you're working late into the night, that is also, you know, even with your blue blockers on, if you're taking in too much information that gets stored in your subconscious. And sometimes that will just be something you ruminate on sitting in your bed. So I would recommend not looking at news, not looking at social media, and not working too late into the night. It's interesting that you bring that up too, because I've noticed with men that I've dated, when they have trouble sleeping, they instantly get on, and this is a generalization, some men that I've dated have done this, <laughs> where if they're having trouble sleeping, they turn on their phones and start scrolling, or they want to go watch TV or something, but what they don't often realize is those things are not going to help you want to fall asleep in most cases. It's kind of like this knee-jerk reaction is, I'm bored or I you know, I can't fall asleep and I'm frustrated, so I'm going to go give myself a dose of pleasure through entertainment. And that actually is counterproductive. So another thing that you can do, and I, I think actually I'd love to share a few practical, simple suggestions, Jason, because everything you're bringing up is great, but a lot of those things require more planning. You have to go buy something new like supplements or the blue blockers or you have to you know, plan not to eat or work right before bed. There are nights where even when you feel like you've done everything, you can't fall asleep. And in those cases, breath work can be really helpful. So cycling through different breathing practices, you could do a guided breath work practice from YouTube or an audio-based breath work. You can also listen to great meditations that are designed for sleep. Sometimes listening to certain types of music or certain sounds can be really helpful. And luckily, we have access to so many apps. There's the Calm app. There's simple habits, which is one that I really like. There's also the tapping solution that can be really wonderful. They have some great audio tracks you can listen to, plus physical practices you can try out. And I feel like I'm missing one of the major apps. Jason, which which apps do you know of, like the meditation and, and calming apps out there? You mentioned simple habit. You mentioned calm. There's a third one that I'm missing that is a big one. And yeah, I can't, I it has can't. like that animated headspace. That's, that's the one it. That that's the biggie. Cute, 
cute little guy. I I can like think of, oh, an insight timer is really nice too. All of those I've used. There's a bunch I haven't used before. There's, you know, if you look it up, there's like the 12 best meditation apps. Like there's so many you can try out. Most of them are free. Some of them have, have paid upgrades, but you can still get a lot out of them. And, and I'll just favorite some really nice tracks. So I always have access to them and they are lifesavers. We mentioned the sleep phones earlier. Those are really great. If you're sharing a room with somebody, you can put on a a pair of Bluetooth headphones or just regular headphones work as well. But if you want to actually fall asleep with it, the sleep phones are really great for that. But again, use what you have. Use the resources. It's incredibly frustrating when you can't sleep. And so something as simple as breathing we're listening to something. You, you could listen to an audiobook too. If if reading helps, get a physical book or listen to the audiobook version of it and you, it'll put you to sleep pretty fast if if your body really wants to sleep. Yeah, I'm glad you shared those simple techniques, Whitney, because yeah, I, I certainly don't expect someone to go out and, you know, buy a hundred dollars worth of supplements. But it, but it's something that's helped me. You know, I know that that herbs and taking the right functional foods has been a huge ally in in getting consistently good sleep. And I also think, you know, going back to removing distractions and removing stimulation, whether that's, again, food too close to bedtime or absorbing content too close to bedtime, that does require planning and it does require practice, but that's something anybody can do. You know, I mean, anybody can start to to, to build that habit for themselves. So with that, my dear friends, we appreciate you being here for This Might Get Uncomfortable. If it's your first time, we hope that you do return and taken more episodes. Uh, You probably got a great feel for how Whitney and I are very tangential, very curious, very experimental with life. And that is the nature of life as we see it is it's a constant experiment. It's a constant dive into our curiosities and exploration of what it means to be human and all the ups and downs of being here on this planet. So if you want to dig into all the resources that we've shared, once again, you can go to podcast.wellevator.com and dig into the show notes for this episode and all of the episodes as we approach 100 episodes and that epic milestone here on the podcast. And again, reach out to us on all of the social media platforms on Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, at Wellevator. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And we will be back again soon with another episode that is sure to go off into many directions we do not even know about. So thanks for being on the journey with us. We appreciate you. And thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 